Before we open the word, just a note or two. Uh, there is a correction on the ladies, I think I'm going to say this wrong, stocking swap and brunch. That is at 10 a.m., not 11 a.m., two weeks from now on Saturday the 9th. Also, uh, I'll leave up here again this note that we have for Conrad and Felistus Mbewe. It's their, we think their third born uh, wants us who went to be with the Lord, I think it was a week ago today at 32 years of age and um, leave me, leaving behind a wife and um, really grieving family. So it'd be great if you'd be willing to write a note and encourage them in that. Also, before we open the word, I'd like us to go to prayer. Uh, Pastor Jamie and I got a text. Uh, I think the elders did this afternoon about 1.30 from Jonathan that his dad was experienced really, really difficult pain, 10 out of 10 this morning. And uh, tack away down in Noonan, Georgia. And uh, Jonathan's mom is Lana. So let's, as we go to the throne of grace one more time, let's remember our brother if we can do that. Father, we would echo the words of the song that we just sung. That you... Um, would speak to us, O Lord, through your word tonight, that you would plant it deep in us, that you would show us Christ, that you might grant us in this day, in this week, that you might grant us fresh faith, renewed faith, renewed repentance. And that you would show us Christ in all his beauty, in his offices as prophet, priest, and king of the church, and in all his sufficiency as our redeemer is the one mediator between God and man. So we pray for grace for that. We also tonight do want to remember um, the Mbewe family in Lusaka, Zambia, as they grieve Mwansa's death, and that your comfort would be deep and rich to them as it would be even to our brother and Pastor Scott, to the whole Van Steenberg family with Marsha's home going just a month ago. We pray for your kindness, your nearness to their family in this hour. And we want to remember Jonathan's father, and the, the pain that he's been experiencing and with apparently no relief. So we pray for Mr. Owe that you might grant him relief, both temporary and even long-term. We pray, oh God, for wisdom and a real sense of urgent response by the doctors that he, ha that he would have relief. We love this brother. We thank you for him and his wife, Lana. Thank you for... Um, their witness, their life, and we pray for mercy. Be with us now as we're in the word. We give you thanks. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Um, let me also, as we open the word, I want to apologize. I am, I've just started over a week ago using a medicine that's making me look like a leopard with spots that won't go away. I think they eventually will. This is all about uh, taking care of uh, South Florida sun-damaged skin from many years ago. I'm sorry, what can I say? The choice was, do I stay home and put a bag over my head or come and be with you? And I chose the latter. So with that, I'm not going to mention it again. Hopefully in a few weeks we'll be better. But let's, uh, let's get the show on the road here. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Leviticus. The big idea here is no holiness, as in the opposite of yes. No holiness, no God. No holiness, that is, have an acquaintance with a real spiritual, vital experience with holiness, and you will know God, K-N-O-W. And as I read Leviticus 1 last Sunday morning, I want to read chapters 2 and 3 tonight. This is really a 12 to 15 week series on this book, which is really the centerpiece of the whole of the Pentateuch. Uh, starting next week, so you'll know, I'm going to take, we're going to do a four-week series, uh, the third through the 24th, an Advent series. So I'm just going to prep you for that. We'll return to this book on New Year's Eve on December 31st. But here we are, uh, the book of Leviticus. And if you have a pew or a chair Bible from in front of you, page 81, and I'd like to read chapters 2 and 3 as I read chapter 1 last Sunday morning. It was Brian Chapel that calls the reading of the sermon text the very first part of the sermon. So here you go with the first part of the sermon, Leviticus chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I might add, be looking for repeated phrases. A pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering, verse 10, shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven, 
nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. And that is a hint there, a, a motif in the Bible, a theme of leaven, symbolic, if you will, of something that's unacceptable of sin. In fact, Paul will take that up in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he goes on to say, and you shall bring the grain offering, verse 8, that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it's presented to the priest, I'm sorry, I lost my way just for a moment. Let me continue verse 13, actually. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Now chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, okay, and the reference there when he says if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, he's speaking again, this is the parallel with 1-1, that is when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, or chapter 2, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, here's the parallel. If it is a sacrifice of peace offering, chapter 3, verse 1, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat offering, the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. There's that phrase again, without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall, that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. 
And by in front of the tent of meeting, we mean outside, okay? And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. And the priest shall burn on them as the altar, burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Now, if you're worried that we're going to read the entirety of the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy outlined out loud over, don't worry about that. We're not, okay? But just to give a sense of it, I wanted us, so over two weeks now, we've read the first three chapters of this book, and it gives us a sense of it. You know, someone has said, no holiness, no God, as I said. No holiness, K-N-O-W, no God. And I think we could say that is true and truly stated. If you could only choose one word as the theme for the book of Leviticus, holiness would be an excellent choice, but not as an end in itself. You see, Dr. Michael Morales has entitled his biblical theology on this book by this title, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? And he's drawing from our call to worship, from Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, to give that, where David is wrestling with this question, all right? And at times we're thinking of the transcendence of God, but significant and important as well as the eminence of God. How is it that I draw near with you? This morning, we had out-of-town guests, and I realized that whenever this guy comes and visits the church, he and I tend, tend to end up speaking really close to each other. And he says something to me this morning. He said something like, on the subject of eminence, he says, I see, Mark, that your personal space, your sense of personal space is unchanged. And I said, I guess you're right. I, I hadn't really thought about that. That sense here, the idea of nearness. And so David is wrestling with this question of nearness. How may you and I draw near to God in Psalm 24? And by way of a very brief review, I introduced this book last Lord's Day morning. Maybe some of you were not here. And we saw that Leviticus is the central book of the five-fold or five-volume collection of books that we call the Pentateuch. Kids, Penta for the number five, right? Or what we'd call the Law of Moses. That's the description that Luke uses there in Luke 24 when he's giving this story of Jesus walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Dr. Morales says this in his introduction to this book. He says, as he speaks of Leviticus, he says the primary theme and the theology of Leviticus and actually of the Pentateuch as a whole, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is this. Here it is. What is the theme and theology of this book? 
that sometimes I think we're so afraid to read. We're so afraid we might not understand it, and therefore it's a wasted effort of reading. He says, here it is. It's Yahweh's, that's God's covenant, his divine, the divine name of God, his covenant name. It's Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. And we saw last week, last Sunday morning, if you weren't here for your benefit, we noted this chiastic structure of the five books of the Pentateuch. And whenever you hear, don't get, don't get scared off by this word chiastic or what we call a chiasm. It's just from the Greek letter key, right? This sense of a cross where something comes this way and then it returns that way, all right? Nothing, it's the same way if I bounce a ball off that wall at this angle, it, re, it bounces off typically and makes the same angle as it bounces off the wall, at, 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 at the same angle as, it, as the ball or the object arrived. And so we have in Genesis an introductory prologue, this book of beginnings to the Pentateuch. On the other end is Deuteronomy, if we have an introductory prologue, then we have this reflective epilogue. We have the book of beginnings, Genesis, and we have the retelling, a book that retells what God is doing and is done with his people there through the covenant promises given to Abraham. And then in these three books in the middle, and amazingly, both Exodus and Numbers are almost identical in length, with Leviticus much shorter. Both Exodus and Numbers around 16,500 words. And these three books together make kind of what you would call an extended journey stop narrative, where Leviticus is the most without any travel at all. Everything's centered there right on the tabernacle. And so you have an exodus with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, leaving of Egypt and building the tabernacle. In Leviticus, you have the tabernacle service. And, it, and it's always in this chiasm at the intersection here that's the main theme. Again, the Bible's inspired literature. And so you have the building of the tabernacle and the leaving of Egypt in Exodus. You have the tabernacle service in Leviticus. And in Numbers, there's this dedicating of the tabernacle. And they're preparing not to leave Egypt, but preparing to enter Canaan. And so here's these three books of which Leviticus is the middle. And they make up a total of these three extended, what we call journey, 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 stop, narratives. But they produce something that's very helpful or you'll get lost in all the detail. They produce literally a geographical double frame. Let me give this to you for a moment if you've never seen this. Exodus has the wilderness journey and then Mount Sinai. Over here is Numbers, Mount Sinai, and more wilderness journey. And right in the middle of these two books, Exodus, with its double frame, Wilderness Journey, Sinai, is Numbers. 
Sinai Wilderness Journey. And in the middle is the book of Leviticus with its focus on the tabernacle, the place of God's dwelling, prefigured by Eden, anticipating Canaan, the promised land, anticipating the temple, the place where God would dwell, anticipating the church as the dwelling of God in the spirit, Ephesians 2, and even Christ himself as the temple who having been torn down said to his enemies, those, and they couldn't get it, if you tear this temple down in three years, in three days, it will be built up. And they mocked him because they had no idea what he meant. But someone's noted another structure, and I think it's, it's critical because we're not going to do a word-for-word word study through this book. We're seeing it from a big picture, a 30,000 foot. Here's another sense of the structure, and I want you to see it. The last half of the book of Exodus is focused on the construction, the setting up of the tabernacle. And the first half of the book of Numbers over here, flanking the book of Leviticus, is concerned with taking down that tabernacle that was being set up in this last half of the book of Exodus. And it's Leviticus that's comprised of God speaking, his speeches from the tabernacle. And so in effect, Leviticus is like this inspired literary tour of the tabernacle that's meant to do exactly what Dr. Morales says it does. The whole theme of the Pentateuch is this. God has opened a way for humanity, for you and me to dwell in the divine presence, particularly through atonement, a theme that stretches through this whole horizon of the Pentateuch and then it finds, its, its rays are finding its highest arc right there in chapter 16 on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. So what's the result? Here's the result. The next time you read Revelation 21 and verse 3, and you read these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I don't think you'll ever read it the same again. So what do we do? What do we, how do we respond? What do we find here in Leviticus 1, 2, 3? Three types of offerings or sacrifices, all right? And, and you'll get these over many weeks, right? There's the burnt grain and peace. And we'll be in this not just tonight, but even uh, on December 31st and during the month of January, there's these offerings. You'll notice largely you'll see laws for burnt offerings, chapter one, grain offerings, and then peace offerings. Then intermixed in here, you'll see the word of sacrifice that is given there in chapter three. If his offering, verse one, is a sacrifice of peace offering, or verse six, if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock. And I want this idea here is offering is the, uh, something given. The sacrifice means the whole loss of life, the costly nature 
of what is given. That's what's in view there. But we don't want to lose sight of the big picture. When you take the the book of Leviticus, I think this will help us. Leviticus 1 through 15 is about approaching God and atonement. And we might say it, it's, we might call it approaching God through blood. On the other side of that, 17 through 27, we could call the holiness code. That's why if you have one word for this book, think holiness. But these first 15 chapters, we could speak of approaching God through blood, okay? And then chapter 16 with the day of atonement, all right, is judgment and holiness. And then chapter 17 through 27, it's life in God's presence through increasing holiness. In fact, many look at this book as saying what's pictured in those first 15 chapters is justification and the other side of that coin is sanctification, is God, we're made right with God, we're now able to approach God, and now over here on this side, we have access to God, we're walking with God in holiness. And the focus is, particularly in that last half of the book, is this communion with God in holiness. But right in the middle, chapter 16, is the day of, of, of atonement. It's the central pivot point of the whole book. And the focus there is judgment and cleansing. All right? And so now we're right in the very beginning. If you're in Leviticus 1 through 3, it's the beginning of the 15 chapters that precede what is the theological center of the whole of the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch's about 25% of the Old Testament. And if you've never seen this, I'm gonna show you this. I'm going to give you the structure, and we're not going to spend a long time on it. The entire structure of the first 15 chapters of Leviticus will find a mirror in chapters 17 through 27. And you can think of it this way. The sanctuary, the priesthood, and personal application. So the first seven chapters of Leviticus deal with the sacrifices and the sanctuary laws. And it will have a correspondence to the end of the book. Secondly, in chapters 8 through 10, is the institution of the priesthood and the priestly laws. And then finally, in chapters 11 through 15, there'll be cleanness and uncleanness. And that will correspond on the other side of the Day of Atonement with this, this, this focus Uh, on holiness. In a number of weeks, we'll see how these work together. So you have chapters 1 through 7, sanctuary laws and the sacrifices, chapters 8 through 10, the priesthood and priestly laws, and then chapters 11 through 15, personal application, the day of atonement, and it works them backward. There's a literary structure to this book that unless you're consciously aware, you may never, you might not see it because you get lost Uh, in the trees and you don't see the forest. So what's most significant about, here's the question, what's most significant about these sacrificial offerings in the first seven chapters of Leviticus? What's significant is that there's a theme, there's sweet shadows. It is Christ here who's pictured. 
He's seen in the offerings. Many of you know this expression that the new, right, the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. He is seen in the offerings. And to be sure, like the blind man in Bethsaida, in Mark 8, 24, who initially said when Jesus, I think, like applied spit to his eyes, he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Our vision of the Lord Jesus in his mediatorial work is this work in progress as we see the shadows of him and his work prefigured in the Old Testament. We have the benefit. And do this. Don't be afraid to read your Bible backwards. When you read of the peace offerings in Leviticus 3, your mind legitimately ought to think and be familiar with. You take, for example, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. What does Paul say there as we think of peace offerings? Paul says this, For he himself, speaking of Christ Jesus... The one who, though previously we were far off, we've now been brought near by his blood. Verse 13. Here it is. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So that by the blood of the cross... In fulfillment of this sweet shadow, for example, of Leviticus 3, and Christ is our peace offering, God has made both vertical peace, he's reconciled us to himself, and he's in the process of reconciling us to one another through the peace, through the blood of his cross, the one by whom he's made peace. And so like the the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, we need a tutor. We also need a tutor to take Moses and the prophets and the Psalms where their writings were about him, where their writings concerned him and how they must be fulfilled. If you might, just for a moment, Luke 24, if you're not familiar with this narrative of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and he says... In verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then there's another opportunity here. It says, He opened their minds, verse 25, to understand the scriptures. And then he shows that, in fact, that what was prophesied that Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that from their repentance, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to the nations. So as you think of Leviticus, these first seven chapters, the sanctuary and the sacrificial laws, you'll see burnt offerings there is the first. And it's like a book almost with no introduction. You might see that. But in reality, there's a date notice. Chapter 40, verse 17 in the book of Exodus And the numbers 1-1 give a date notice. And it's in between these that the first of the sanctuary sacrifices or the sacrificial offerings is given. It's the subject of chapter 1, burnt offerings. And nothing is spared. That's the whole point of a burnt offering. 
absolutely nothing is spared. I kind of enjoy this sometimes, and I'm not sure this is always wise, but in our fire pit, at the end of the night, maybe there's still a little bit of fire in there. And I'm not the type to go and like spray it down with a hose. I just leave it with its cover. And no matter what is burning the next morning, all there is is what? Just pure ashes. It's all burnt up. There's like nothing organic that could be burned any further. That's the point of the burnt offerings. Nothing was spared. It's a whole burnt offering. You see in verse 9, it says, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. You see that same phrase, verse 9, verse 13, verse 17. And the Lord Jesus is pictured as the burnt offering was to be a male without blemish. You see that same expression in verse 3 and verse 10. And the writer of the book of Hebrews identifies the Lord Jesus as such, as one without blemish. We read in I think it's chapter 7, verse 26. We read of one who was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And the writer is just like a babbling brook is just spilling all these descriptions of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. You see how the offerer actually slays the offering. And except for the offering of birds, the offer killed the very offering he brought. So I want you to think about this. The offer killed the very offering he brought. You see this, verse 4, chapter 1, is very similar in chapter 3 on the peace offering. Speaking of the one who's bringing the offering, he brings it, he lays his hand on the head of it, And then it says, then he shall kill the bull, verse 5, before the Lord. Or verse 11, and he shall kill it, speaking of an offering from the flock, he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. But last Lord's Day morning, I referenced the idea that John Murray puts forth about the fourfold nature of the atonement, that it's inclusive first of sacrifice. That's at the heart of Christ's atoning death for us. But it's very unique at the cross. And let me read this. John Murray says that Christ's work was to offer himself a sacrifice for sin implies, he says, a complementary truth that's too frequently overlooked. It is that if Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, he was also a priest. And it was as a priest that he offered himself. He was not offered up by another, he offered himself. And this is something that could not be exemplified in the ritual of the Old Testament. The priest did not offer himself, and neither did the offering Offer itself. I mean, can you imagine a bull marching up right there just outside the, the tabernacle of the tent of meeting? And he's like, here I am. Mm, I'm ready to be slain. It didn't happen. The priest did not offer himself, and neither did the offering offer himself. But in Christ, John Murray says, we have this unique combination 
that serves to exhibit the uniqueness of his sacrifice, the transcendent character of his priestly office, and the perfection inherent in his priestly offering. And so we say, in Christ, the offerer and the offering were one and the same person. We see the guilt as we return to Leviticus 1. It's transferred symbolically by laying his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And to lay on is another way of saying cover to connect with this word for atone. That word for the tone, that verb is kafar. Or when we say Yom Kippur, we mean the day of atonement, as in Leviticus 16. And so verse 4 makes sense when this phrase, chapter 1, this phrase, lay his hand, that is the offerer, is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It's the act which is received as accepted so that this offering is accepted to make propitiation for sin for the offer, symbolically. Do you remember Isaiah 53, 6? It says, and the Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it was Paul who expressed it differently in this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know how this happened? Do you know how that happened? The father laid his heavy hand of justice on the Son, that you and I in Christ might be declared righteous, possessing the very righteousness of the Son imputed to us. And as Pastor Jamie said this morning, it's not simply as though we never sinned, but it is though in Christ, justified in him through his blood, we are reckoned as though we have always obeyed. We never sinned and we always obeyed. And that is good news. That's the gospel that we must tell ourselves today and every day. Notice also the reality of blood. Blood, this whole book just bleeds blood. You see it in verses 5, 11, and 15. Kids, if you have not figured this out, this is a bloody seen. It is. It's unmistakably bloody. I think we probably would have wanted to close our eyes. We probably would have done like this. We might have even felt, some of us might have even felt like gagging, okay? That's what it's like, right? When you open up an animal, it's not just the sight, it's not just the sounds, it's even the smells, The father laid his hand upon the son and he crushed him that he might have a seed in fulfillment of the covenant of redemption that was made in the Trinity. And so this book bleeds blood. And the blood is taken by Aaron's sons, the priests, 
And long before anyone had this blood splatter technology and theory, as a sweet shadow of the Son of God, Aaron's sons, the priests, were splattering the blood of the burnt offering animals and the peace offering animals against the altar. On the outside, located at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Have you ever asked what's so significant about blood? There's life in the blood. There's a verse, we'll see it in many weeks, and I think it's chapter 17, that connects life with blood. It's the basis in Genesis 9 for capital punishment. And so death by the spilling of blood produces life. Michael Morales says it this way, and I want to paraphrase. Life is the significance of sacrificial blood. And he says the pervasive emphasis throughout the first half of Leviticus upon the blood of animals is to be understood rather as an emphasis upon life. And this truth will shout to us then when the blood, okay, anytime you see the word blood now in the book of Leviticus, think life. Think kaim, like life, to life. Think life. And it's going to shout to us when the blood of that sacrificial bull is brought all the way into the holy of holies on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 and verse 14. And many of you, no doubt, are familiar with these words in Hebrews 9 and verse 22. It's the single chapter in the, entire, in the, in, in the whole of the New Testament that highlights the redeeming life that oozed out from the blood of the crucified Christ. He says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Have you ever thought when Peter is writing his first letter to this diaspora, these Christians that are scattered everywhere, and a most powerful word of encouragement to them in the insecurity of the world they were living as scattered Christians was this, guess what? You were redeemed by something that will never be taken away by the precious blood of the Lamb of God whose sins take away the sin of the world. Not perishable things, but imperishable. I want us to see too that these sanctuary offerings, they yielded this pleasing aroma to the Lord. You can see even in our section, at three times in each chapter, you'll see this expression of pleasing aroma to the Lord. And we have a precedence in Genesis where the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's burnt offerings. And the pleasure, the delight that the Lord felt is given as the very reason Maybe unlike some of you this week, you know how it is you walk on Thanksgiving, you can smell the turkey and everything, and sometimes your mouth, you even literally begin to water. Your mouth begins to water the thought of what you're going to have. But in God's case there in Genesis 8 with Noah, that pleasure that he received 
from Noah's burnt offerings. It's given as the reason that he makes this first inner heart oath to never again curse the ground or destroy all of mankind. Of course, the rainbow in the sky is a symbol of that covenant promise. What I want to point out to you too is you think, I want you to collectively think of Leviticus 1 through 7 as a unit. And that is what is largely true with the burnt offerings has parallels with the grain offerings and the peace offerings. These are the sanctuary laws that concern the sacrifices. As we learned last week, sacrifice, excuse me, sacrifices exist because holiness does not. And holiness necessitates sacrifice. All right? Holiness necessitates sacrifice. We may approach God, right? Leviticus 1 through 15. We may approach him because of the atonement. But 17 through 27 in the holiness code, the God who says you shall be holy because I am holy says the way of access is the way of holiness. And the only way we have holiness is because of the acceptable offering of the Son of God. So here's our assignment. I want to encourage you in this next month, we will not return to this book until December 31st. Between now and the end of the year, Read meditatively through Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Look for hands laid on the heads of offered animals. See the blood thrown against the altar. Think of how it pleased the Lord to crush him. He is, our Lord Jesus is the one whom the Father laid his hand upon and crushed him for our benefit. When you see the blood thrown on the altar, think of the blood of the Son of God by whom we were saved. Look for the blood of Christ. Look for it in the apostles' writing. Notice how the Lord finds the aroma of the offerings so pleasing. Look, we looked at this last week. I want to encourage you to memorize from 1 Corinthians, consistent with this book, to take... Not in, yes, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Take 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and commit to memory this section about fragrance in chapter 2, verses 14, through the, even through the end of the chapter, verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And he says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. We who have received all the benefits of the son's sacrifice, whose lives now are this ongoing offering, right? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, where Paul says, you know, in light of the gospel, he says very simply, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So how do we die daily? We die daily by daily presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God. This is us, Roman, uh, of Hebrews 13, taking not just the 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17, but memorizing Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him, the writer says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is a fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As you look at these seven chapters of Leviticus and the sanctuary laws and the sacrificial offerings, ask, where's the shadow? How is Christ pictured in the offerings? How is what's in the new, in the old concealed and in the, what's concealed in the old revealed in the new? If you're gonna sing a song like All I Have is Christ and you really mean it, if you think all you have is Christ, then you'll be looking for Christ in his word, for the law and the prophets and the Psalms. It's these that bear witness to him. You know, four weeks from tonight, right now, four weeks from tonight will be Christmas Eve. It will be December the 24th. Are you orienting your heart? Are you orienting your heart daily to say all I have is Christ? Are you orienting your heart to be able to say with the apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Are you orienting your heart to say with Paul in Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. The reason that in Christness is so central to all the theology and the doctrine of the apostles is that there's life, is because there's life in no other. Let's look to Christ, the one in whom is all life.